Renowned photojournalist and war photographer Lindsay Adario and three fellow journalists were shooting the Arab Spring uprising in Libya in March 2011 when the unthinkable happened at a hostile checkpoint. The atmosphere was incredibly hostile, incredibly tense. They, we were clearly the enemy to them. They asked immediately if we were spies. They told us to lie face down in the dirt, put our arms behind our back, uh, took my Nike shoes off my feet, pulled the laces out, tied me up with my laces, and put Kalashnikovs to our heads. So they put guns to our heads and, and were about to execute us. I mean, we were all lying face down in the dirt, execution style, in a line. Adario and her colleagues were released nearly a week later. It was hard enough to recover from the trauma of her violent kidnapping, but when a month later Adario learned that two other journalist friends had been killed in Libya, her world fell apart. Hello everyone, I'm Chitra Raghavan and this is When It Mattered. This episode is brought to you by Good Story, an advisory firm helping technology startups find their narrative. My guest today is Lindsay Adario, the Pulitzer Prize-winning photojournalist who, for the past 15 years, has covered every major conflict and humanitarian crisis of her generation. A regular contributor to the New York Times, National Geographic, and Time magazine, Adario has reported and photographed from some of the most dangerous hotspots in the world, including Afghanistan, Iraq, Darfur, Libya, Syria, Lebanon, South Sudan, Somalia, and Congo. Adario also is the author of the best-selling memoir, It's What I Do, a powerful narrative about her coming of age as a photojournalist during the post-9-11 war on terror. Lindsay, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Did you always want to be a photographer? Uh, no, actually, I never wanted to be a photographer. <laughs> I, um, for me, I started photographing as a hobby, and it was something I did sort of uh, as I was growing up. I taught myself. I bought books on how to photograph, but it was never really something I took seriously, I guess, because I didn't have exposure to photojournalism. And so it wasn't until I graduated from the University of Wisconsin with a degree in international relations and Italian that I moved abroad and I started really paying attention to uh, photography as a form of journalism and storytelling. And that's really when I decided I wanted to become a photographer. Your first camera was actually a gift from your dad. I mean, you and uh, your four, you were one of four sisters, I guess. You were born and raised in Westport, Connecticut, and you've had a very unique childhood and parenting. I have. Um, I Both my parents are hairdressers and uh, we had a very eccentric household growing up. It was sort of a free-for-all open door. I would come home from school and never really knew who would be sitting at the table. You know, the real hairdressing community of the 70s and 80s. And um, so when I was eight years old, my dad came out and he left uh, with the colorist, Bruce, and they have been together for 35 years now. And we all are close and it's a sort of big, happy family. So definitely not your run-of-the-mill family. <laughs> How did you begin photographing professionally? Well, my dad, um, one of his clients gave him an old Nikon camera 
And he, I was visiting him shortly after my parents separated and I saw the camera at his house and I asked him about it and he just gave it to me sort of instinctively. And that was it really. Um, I just became obsessed with learning how to photograph and the light and how to capture a moment in time. And, and so for me, it was a real passion. It was a love, but really, again, I, I never, it never dawned on me to try and make a living with photography. And when did you first start doing that? Well, after I graduated um, from college, so I was about 21, I moved to Argentina. And I, my goal was to learn Spanish and to spend a little time there. And so I moved down there. And almost immediately, I went into the Buenos Aires Herald, which is a local newspaper. And I started begging them for a job. I have no idea why, because obviously I had no published work and no experience. And, and they sort of shooed me away and said, you know, come back when you learn Spanish and, and when you know how to photograph. <laughs> and so I went and I learned Spanish very quickly because I actually had already spoken Italian. So I, I just basically kept going back in until I wore them down. And then they said, um, okay, well, look, Madonna is filming Evita at the Casa Rosada. So if you can sneak on set and get a picture of Madonna, we'll give you a job. And so I managed to, of course, talk my way on set. And I got up to the press riser. And I only had a little 50 millimeter lens on my camera. And so I had gotten through the barrier. I got on the riser. And I was so far away from the from the stage where Madonna was performing or the Casa Rosada that obviously I couldn't take a photograph. And to my to my luck, one of the photographers standing next to me sort of looked at me and obviously pitied me. And he tapped me on the shoulder and said, give me your camera body. And he put it on the back of his like Hubble telescope of a lens. And I got a picture of Madonna <laughs> and I got a job. <laughs> so that was it. That's amazing. And, and you started selling photographs for what, 10 bucks a, a photo, right? Something like that. I did. Yeah, that was the going rate then. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Your boyfriend at the time, Miguel, gave you some sage advice about the importance of making mistakes in Argentina versus elsewhere. Yeah, he, um, you know, he sort of ushered me into journalism, actually. And he gave me some very good advice at that time. And he said, you know, make all your mistakes in Argentina, because no one will give you a second chance in New York. And he was right. I mean, I, I, I think I got a few chances in New York, but I really, it, it paid off to spend some time there learning sort of how to work a situation. So when you wound up in New York in the late 1990s and began your freelance career in earnest, what were some of the most uh, important assignments you had in those first few years in, you know, trying to make, get that break? Well, look, I started um, the, I was very lucky because the Associated Press in New York uh, sort of opened their doors to me and they took me on as a freelancer. So that meant at the time I would run around uh, New York City with a pager and a cell phone and basically wait for an assignment. And I think what that taught me, you know, from, from 1996 was that, you know, A, I have to hustle. I have to always look for the light and a good photograph. And I can't come back from any situation without a strong image. So that meant trying to make strong photographs out of a press conference or, you know, whether it was Giuliani, who was mayor at the time, or, or a protest or a demonstration or things that are not so easy to make compelling. I had to make a good photo because that's what it was like working at a wire service. And so I think that that taught me an incredible amount of discipline and it taught me perseverance and it taught me, you know, how to stick with the situation until I can make a good photo. 
And that kind of patience, I think, came in handy when you took on one of your most challenging initial assignments, which was photographing the transvestite prostitute community in New York. What was that like? And and how did you go about that? So basically, um, in the late 90s, there was a series of murders in the transgender prostitution community. And apparently, Mayor Giuliani had received a report on the series of murders. And he read the report and he said, this is a throwaway community, so we don't really need to pay attention to them ultimately. And so the idea at the Associated Press was to take on that story and to really tell the story of what is this community? Who are these people? What are they like? And to just sort of have a more intimate view of what it was like in the 90s to be a transgender prostitute and were there a series of murders going on? And so one of the editors at the time, Bobito, came to me and he said, he was also a photographer, he still is a photographer. And he came to me and he said, you know, would you like to do this assignment? And it basically means spending every single weekend for the next X amount of months uh, you know, basically walking the streets in the meatpacking district and in lower Manhattan. And for me, it was a dream come true because I knew it was a chance to actually try to get into a community that had been impenetrable for me and to try to tell their story. And, and I felt like it was for the first time in my career really giving a voice to a community that wasn't really being accessed and wasn't really talking about what it was like for them. So it took a long time. I mean, for weeks I went down. Um, I was very lucky because there was a a van, a sort of community outreach van that went down into the meatpacking district and handed out uh, condoms and and talked to talked to the women about STDs. And so I sort of rode around in the van with them. And I didn't try and photograph for weeks in the beginning. I just sort of showed my face and let people become familiar with me. And then eventually uh, I started taking out my camera, but not really shooting, um, sort of waiting for permission. And then finally one night, uh, Kima, who was one of the women who walked the street, she said, okay, girl, you want, you want to start photographing us? We'll come up to my apartment at one in the morning and, and you can hang out with us. And that was really sort of the door opening. And then I spent months, basically every Thursday, Friday, and Saturday hanging out with them and really getting to know them and documenting their lives. And they got to know you really well. And there's this really funny anecdote in your book where you were then <laughs> dating somebody and you ended up in that neighborhood. Tell us what happened. I actually wasn't dating somebody. It was my first date with him. <laughs> he was, um, it was a guy that I had met. Um, I, I had met and he was a musician and we decided to go out on a date. And so we were, um, we met in the meatpacking district because it was also a very hip place to hang out. And so we met and we went to dinner and or we went for drinks and then he walked me home. And as he was walking me home, we sort of got to the, the doorstep where I was staying and we're waiting. And it was that very sort of awkward time where it's your first date. You don't know if you're going to kiss or you're sort of waiting and saying goodbye. And so I was sort of just standing there and we were just saying goodbye. And I think we just started, we just started kissing and suddenly I hear all these cat calls like, it's the photo lady. Hey, it's the photo lady, Lynn. And I was like, it can't be possible. <laughs> so we sort of stopped and, and it was the entire, it was like Kima, Lala, all of the girls were surrounding us. And they were like, you go girl. Yeah, you have a life. Like, because basically I had never, like they thought I had absolutely no life, which I didn't because I spent all my free time with them. And so they were, <laughs> the poor guy was like, who are you again? <laughs> but that was very funny. Yeah. 
I bet you never saw him again. Yeah, he didn't seem very, like, easily scared off, but no, I, I didn't go out with him again, no. How did you, how did you go from being a photojournalist to becoming a war photographer? It was quite a leap. I mean, I didn't, you know, first of all, I never sort of set out to be a war photographer. I'm not, um, I wasn't one of those photographers who from the time I was very young sort of dreamed of following in the footsteps of Robert Kappa or, you know, any of the great photographers. I, for me, when I was becoming a photographer, I would spend so much time in Soho at the photographer's place, which was a bookstore at the time that it has since closed down. And looking at books, not only of war photography, Gilles Perez and, and Joseph Kudelka and Jim Noctaway, but also looking at, you know, Sally Mann and Mary Ellen Mark and photographers who didn't necessarily cover war. So it was a gradual process. I mean, I was telling stories. Um, for me, it's always been about giving a voice to people who are underrepresented or who are often misunderstood. And I felt like after September 11th, those communities were really in the Muslim world and they were, there were so many questions about why were we attacked? Who are these people? Where are the attacks coming from? And so immediately it was Afghanistan and Pakistan and, and South Asia primarily. And I had already had experience there because I had been based in India in 2000. And so for me, it was very natural to just get on a plane and go to Pakistan and Afghanistan because I had already worked there and I was very comfortable. And so basically I stayed there uh, through uh, the fall of the Taliban. I ended up covering the fall of the Taliban in Kandahar. And then by that time I worked you know, consistently in Afghanistan. And so when the war in Iraq was sort of brewing, I wanted to go. I guess because I felt like, you know, okay, these are the wars of our generation and I, and I want to be part of history. I want to document these wars and sort of create a historical document, create understanding, help America understand what is going on, you know, where we're sending American troops. And so it was more of an intellectual reasoning. It was more of a, a sort of drive to document the truth and, and to cover history. The work that you did in Afghanistan before 9-11 actually positioned you for, to do some of this groundbreaking work. You, you actually went there to shoot images of the women under Taliban rule. And a friend of yours in Delhi had told you, go, go to Afghanistan. You're interested in women's issues. You know, this is a very interesting story. And I think that proved to be, you did some amazing work there. What was that like? Yeah, I mean, it's funny because um, I was, at that time, it was 2000, and uh, I was based in New Delhi, and I was trying to sort of make it as a photographer uh, based overseas, and I was dirt poor and renting a room from Ed Lane, who was the Dow Jones bureau chief at the time, and he was going in and out of Afghanistan with the backing of Dow Jones, and, and it was under the Taliban, but there were very few journalists who were actually getting visas to go in and, and report there, and so... He came back from one of the trips and he said, you know, you're a woman and you care about women's issues and you should go and cover this. And I thought, yeah, you're absolutely right. That's a great idea. But I went into it like pretty naively. Um, you know, for me, I, I've sort of thrown myself head on into everything that I've done, believing that 
you know, people in general are good around the world. And if I go in there with an open heart and kind of saying, okay, I'm here to tell your story, I'll be safe. And so that's ironically how I went into going into Afghanistan under the Taliban. Like, I just want to tell the story of the women living here and what, what it's like for them. And so he really encouraged me. I ended up borrowing money from my sister to go because of course, no publication would back me at the time. I had very little experience. And I also, I didn't have a relationship, a consistent relationship with a newspaper at that time. So I ended up going on my own and, and spending spending my own money and trying to tell these stories and then selling the pictures after the fact. Yeah. And as you pointed out in your book, you know, it was a time when people weren't interested in Afghanistan. No, not really. I mean, it had been at war already for 20 years and, and there was, you know, people were sort of not that interested, but it was right after September 11th, of course, that everyone was sort of vying for those pictures because again, very few people had gotten in and been able to document life under the Taliban. What was it like when you when you went there to sort of learn how you would have to build trust in this new environment, you know, in this new culture where you couldn't make eye contact with with men, especially and uh, everyone, you know, how you dressed, how you moved around. What were some of the and it's a very it was a risky, dangerous environment. What was that like for you? And how did you learn to do that? So I was very lucky because uh, Kathy Gannon, who was the bureau chief then um, for the Associated Press in Pakistan, she had been going in and out of Afghanistan for years, and she still is going in and out of Afghanistan. And she was incredibly generous with her knowledge and her experience. And so she helped me get the visa to go in. And she also sort of schooled me a little bit on how, how I should dress, uh, how to conduct myself, where to stay, how to deal with the Taliban foreign ministry. Um, because they actually had a ministry. Um, they were operating out of, you know, buildings that were half standing. Um, there was one hotel functioning in the entire Kabul, if not the entire country. And that hotel was uh, half sort of rocketed out, uh, no electricity, only generator run, uh, water at certain times. And so Kathy really taught me sort of how to dress and how to act. And so that was helpful. But then, of course, on the ground, it was it was also sort of learning how to deal with certain situations. I mean, photography was illegal at the time. Photographing any living being was illegal. So while I had permission to photograph destroyed buildings, I did not have permission to photograph people. So I had to sneak pictures of women and or go inside people's homes and, and take pictures then. You have this amazing anecdote in the book about trying to get a visa in Karachi to enter Afghanistan and you had to deal with this young visa officer named Mohammed and you were warned you had to deal with him in a certain way, but you actually ended up having a very revealing conversation with him. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so it was in Islamabad actually. And and Mohammed was, you know, I was sort of warned that he would not look me in the eye. He would make me sit there for days and he would basically just shoo me away at some point. You know, it would just take ages because I was a single woman trying to get into Afghanistan. And so um, luckily, Kathy sent me with uh, one of her drivers and she would sort of, she came in and checked on me a few times and made sure that they were actually dealing with me. But I sort of sat there with my eyes to the ground and sort of basically waited to be noticed by Muhammad. And, you know, he would ask, are you married? You know, are you married? Do you have children? And, you know, I lied and said, yes, I'm married. And yes, I have children because I was told that, you know, it's better to be married than to be single. And, and so I, so this is all, you know, years ago. And so finally, there were people coming in and out of the visa room, you know, drivers and people 
procuring visas for, for other journalists and other companies. And finally, there was a moment where there was like no one else. And it was like, you know, I had already been sitting there for days and he was, he started asking me more and more personal questions, you know, like, what is it like in your country? And, you know, and so we ended up sort of developing this, this um, very, not quick friendship, but he opened up to me and he started telling me that his mother had died and he was worried that he would never find a wife. And, and in the end, he gave me a visa. <laughs> so there. That's amazing. After 9-11, your, your world became infinitely more dangerous and you've kind of been in every major hotspot uh, in the world, you know, framed by this backdrop of the war on terror. And your book describes in graphic details the dangers of being a female photographer in these parts of the world. And you've kind of been subjected to all kinds of dangerous incidents. Can you list some of the lowlights? <laughs> <laughs> some of the lowlights. Um, I have been kidnapped twice, uh, once in Iraq in 2004, uh, April of 2004 with a New York Times colleague in Garma on the outskirts of uh, Fallujah. Uh, it was right before the first invasion of Fallujah. The second time was in Libya for a week in 2011, uh, also on assignment for the New York Times. I was kidnapped with uh, three other New York Times journalists and held for a week. Uh, we were taken by forces loyal to Gaddafi at the time. Uh, I was thrown out of a car on a highway in Pakistan in 2009, and my driver, Raza, um, who was an incredible driver and great journalist and friend to many, uh, died in that accident. I was ambushed in the Korongal Valley in 2007, October of 2007, uh, with the 173rd Airborne. It was a pretty uh, intense battle. Um, it was during Operation Rock Avalanche, and three soldiers were shot, and Sergeant Rubel was killed. And then just, you know, a countless other times I've been detained in Darfur and photographing, you know, often detained by the same men who signed my paper to be able to photograph would then detain me the next day and in sort of terrifying show of force and intimidation to try to get me to stop doing my job. So it's been, yeah, it's been tough. It's been, uh, you know, it's one who takes on this job has to continuously remind uh, him or herself, why we do this and why it's important to tell these stories. You were, just talk briefly about the two kidnappings. The first time was in Iraq. How long was that for and, and how did you get out of that? That actually was not, I mean, that was for a day. Um, obviously, it, look, a day with like many, many guns to, to my head was not a very good day. <laughs> but <laughs> it was, um, you know, compared to Libya, it was not so bad. We were, we had heard that a helicopter had gone down, a U.S. helicopter with troops uh, outside of Fallujah. And it was sort of, everything was ramping up to the first siege of Fallujah. And the, the situation in Iraq was getting uh, really bad very quickly. This is in April of 2004. And so we were looking to find that helicopter and we ended up taking a smuggler's route toward Fallujah because all the main roads were closed in preparation for the siege. And so we, in taking the smuggler's route, we ended up driving like smack into an, a village of insurgents. And it was sort of terrifying. The beginning of any kidnapping uh, is the most terrifying part because adrenaline is running high and, and the insurgents or whoever ends up kidnapping you is, you know, screaming and shooting and rockets and, you know, everyone uh, had their faces wrapped and pulled, pulled the driver and translator out of the car and 
tried to pull my colleague out of the car and, and then just left me sitting there because as the only woman, I'm often just left in the car, which never really makes any sense to me. So um, I ended up, I watched sort of my colleague get ushered off into the sea of guns and rockets. And I just thought, you know, an American man alone will get killed. So I jumped out and I thought, you know, I'm just going to say I'm his wife. And, and so we went, I ran up and I sort of pointed to my ring and I said, he's my husband and I, I'm not leaving him. And I sort of looped my arm around his arm and we ended up getting taken for the day together, questioned, guns to the head. Then we were ostensibly released around three in the afternoon or a little later. And they ended up shooting rockets over our heads toward the American base. And then the commander handed us off to a guy who was supposed to lead us out of the town. And instead, he brought us to another safe house and basically detained us all over again. And so it was terrifying. You know, it was terrifying because, you know, we didn't know if we would get released. Obviously, night was falling and, and the, the fear was that if we spent the night there, we would be killed. And so eventually, uh, we were very, very lucky at the sort of right before, right at dusk, the owner of the safe house we were brought into ended up just basically driving us out of the city and saying, get out, you know. And so we were very lucky. It turned out one of our, one of our colleagues uh, was later embedded with that same group of insurgents and said they were linked to Al-Qaeda and we were so lucky we got out. The second time was in uh, 2011. Uh, it was relatively the beginning of the uprising, the popular uprising in Libya. And um, any journalist covering the popular uprising in Libya had to sneak in without a visa because obviously Gaddafi did not want the world to know that there was a popular uprising. So we, um, I entered uh, through Egypt into eastern Libya uh, to Benghazi. And shortly after, there was sort of a call to arms and, and this call to go fight against Gaddafi's troops by the rebel forces. And those at that time, this was um, February of 2000. 2011, those guys had very, very little fighting experience. So it basically, me and a handful of other photographers sort of followed those fighters right up to the front line and ended up spending three weeks covering very, very heavy combat against Gaddafi's military. And we knew, you know, the main sort of danger aside from being hit in crossfire or by a mortar round or tank round uh, was really being taken by Qaddafi's troops because Qaddafi from Western Libya was saying, you know, all journalists are spies. And if you see any journalists in Eastern Libya, they're spies and you should kill them. So we knew that as the front line approached, that as Qaddafi's troops approached, that one of the big dangers was that they would overrun our positions and that we would be taken taken into custody. And so on March 15th, 2011, I was covering the front line with Tyler Hicks, uh, Anthony Shadid, and Stephen Farrell. And there was very heavy fighting in the town of Ajdabia. And we were in two separate vehicles. And the vehicle that Anthony and Steve were traveling in their driver's brother was shot at the front line. So he suddenly, in the middle of the battle, just dumped their stuff on the side of the road. So it ended up that we were four journalists in one car with our driver, Muhammad. And four journalists in one car is tricky, of course, because we all have very different needs. Uh, Anthony was a writer, me and Tyler are photographers, and Steve was a video journalist. And so we all had different ideas of what we needed to do to cover the story. So we ended up going to the hospital to count the wounded and then went back to the front line as the front line was really, um, as Qaddafi's troops were really closing in on the town. 
we ended up staying too long. Uh, Mohammed uh, received several phone calls saying Gaddafi's troops were entering in the city. Uh, his brother, Abdullah, was working for the BBC, and we continued working through those calls, which was obviously a grave mistake. And by the time we made a decision to leave, Gaddafi's troops had flanked the desert and cut the road in front of us. And so we ran directly into one of his checkpoints. And it was extremely violent. Uh, we were pulled out of the car. All the men, again, were pulled out of the car, were wrestling with his, his soldiers. At that time, uh, the rebels that we had been covering started opening fire on Gaddafi's checkpoint. So we were caught in sort of a wall of bullets. I knew personally I had to get out of the car at that point because I, we were not in an armored vehicle, so I could get shot. Uh, so I ended up uh, jumping out of the car to the right-hand side and immediately was sort of taken by one of Gaddafi's troops and wrestling for my cameras, which was very stupid, with him. And finally, we all made a run for it to a building nearby. Immediately, you know, the atmosphere was incredibly hostile, incredibly tense. They, we were clearly the enemy to them. They asked immediately if we were spies. They told us to lie face down in the dirt, put our arms behind our back. Uh, took my Nike shoes off my feet, pulled the laces out, tied me up with my laces, and put Kalashnikovs to our heads. So they put guns to our heads and and were about to execute us. I mean, we were all lying face down in the dirt, execution style, in a line. And at that point, we don't know why, but one of the commanders came over and he said, you can't kill them, they're American. And uh, so they didn't execute us, but instead they, um, they blindfolded us and put us back in vehicles in the middle of the battle. So like right on the front line and kind of like made fun of us watching us squirm and get be terrified that we would be shot or mortared uh, for hours. You know, I was punched in the face immediately. I, I was forced to speak to the wife of one of the soldiers who told me I was a dog and a donkey because I was a journalist. And then they put us in the back of a tank and moved us to a different place on the front line. And basically for the first three, four days, we were beaten repeatedly, tied up, blindfolded, threatened with execution, psychologically just sort of tortured, said they would kill us now, they were about to kill us. Um, and then eventually we were moved to Tripoli where we were put inside of sort of a VIP prison. Uh, what that means is basically an apartment with bars on the window and we think a sort of military base, but we have no idea where. And then we were released after about a week. Would you say that that of all the dangerous things you've done, what, would you say that was the greatest moment of adversity in your life? Yeah. I mean, that was the most terrifying moment of my life. I mean, that, you know, there was a moment when I was lying face down in the dirt. My mouth was so dry, I couldn't even swallow. I was sure it was the moment of my death. I had a gun to my head and I was literally just, you know, I was staring down a barrel of a, of a Kalashnikov and I thought, you know, what am I doing here? You know, I can't believe I'm going to die in a town called Ajdabia for what? And it's a question, obviously, I know the answer to that question. It's a question I've had to ask myself throughout my entire career. But I do ask myself constantly because every time I'm confronted with the possibility that I might die, I have to ask myself, you know, how important is it that I tell these stories? 
And I think it's important for people to understand just how afraid you are at times. You know, you're terrified. There are times when you're crying, you know, and it's like you're constantly questioning and there's that inner voice that you have to listen to that says, you need to get out now. And I thought it was interesting. There was one in Libya, I think, when when you first started shooting the Arab Spring, one day you were like, I can't even put the camera to my eye. You know, it so- was that day, actually. It was the day I had a premonition that something would happen that day. And and I was so sort of paralyzed by fear that I could barely I could barely shoot that entire morning. How do you push yourself? How do you get out of that? How do you overcome that fear? Well, I mean, it's funny because the question I get asked most is, God, are you fearless? You must be so fearless or or sort of the statement I get most. And it's so frustrating because no, obviously I'm not fearless. I'm terrified in these moments. Any human being, any rational human being is terrified. Um, It's just really learning how to manage that fear and deal with that fear and process it in the moment. So, you know, obviously I was so scared that morning for whatever reason. I think, I think, we had just been sort of in the middle of battle for two straight weeks and I was exhausted and I, I just had a feeling sort of our luck was going to run out very soon. And I, and, but the only way through that is to literally push through it. And I, I just said, okay, I've got to get through the morning because we're going back to Benghazi in the afternoon and then I can rest and sort of recoup, you know, and, and really center myself again. And, and so I just, it was a matter of just trying to get through that morning. And, and so how did you um, recover from that, the Libyan kidnapping, especially since I guess a month after that, you got some terrible news about a couple of your friends too? Yeah. I mean, ironically, when we got out of Libya, I was okay. I mean, I mentally felt, you know, we're so lucky we survived. Our driver was killed. Muhammad was killed. And so that was something that we really had to process and deal with and and accept responsibility for because it was really our fault. I mean, we were the ones who pushed to stay. So I think, you know, that was sort of the hardest thing about what happened in Libya. You know, what happened to us I know this sounds ridiculous, but you know, human beings are built for survival, and and my mind, you know, the mind is very powerful, and it can get you through very traumatic events. So when we came out of Libya, I was just so grateful to have survived, and and I felt very guilty about what I put my family through. I think that's one of the hardest parts is you know dealing with Muhammad's death and dealing with what the stress and the trauma that I put my my parents through, and, and my sisters and my husband and. And then sort of just coming to terms with all of that, you know, that this is part of doing this work. And then I think there was a period where we did a lot of sort of press interviews and, you know, we felt, okay, we're journalists and we have to be transparent about what happened because it'd be hypocritical not to. And so we talked, you know, we did a lot of media and that actually helped process uh, what we had gone through. But then when Tim Hetherington and Chris Hondros were killed a month later, suddenly everything sort of just collapsed because I don't know if it's survivor's guilt, if it's that I realized like how we really, we, we should have been dead. I mean, there's no reason that we survived that. There's no logical reason that we survived what we did. And so it was really traumatic because just, just sort of witnessing sort of this wave of sadness and trauma that went through our community of, of war photographers and, photo, and, and sort of war correspondents, you know, it really showed sort of how selfish this profession is at times and what we put our loved ones through. 
You you've been very open and candid about sort of the physical limitations of being a female war photographer in these countries that are so hostile to women. You know, not looking weep or wimpy, or taking on these dangerous assignments, keeping up with the military, and also your fellow male journalists. You know, while always listening to your inner voice that's telling you when to quit, but you don't want to quit and and look weak. And so you've got this push and pull, and as you as you talk about your work. And you have this great uh, anecdote in your book where you were shooting this increasingly unruly demonstration. I think it was in Pakistan and you were getting groped and you were comparing that to what your male counterparts, you know, kind of the relatively easy time they had. Yeah. I mean, look, I, I think the thing is, I, I think it's impossible to sort of quantify trauma. You know, I don't think that, um, I, I just don't think it's possible to say like being punched in the face is worse than being groped or, or better than being groped. Or, you know, I think for me, I was treated differently because I was a woman. You know, I was touched, you know, basically by every soldier we came in contact with. Um, I was not raped, but I was definitely, you know, when you're blindfolded and tied up and, and to be touched sort of very intimately, it was, it was terrifying because all I could think of is that this will lead to rape. But at the same time, I could hear my male colleagues getting beaten up and getting smacked with, you know, the gun butts. And I thought, you know, God, they have it so much worse than me. And at the same time, you know, Tyler admitted that he was thinking he could hear me crying and begging for them to stop touching me. And it was horrible for him to hear that. So I think, you know, you can't really say what's worse. I mean, for me, I felt like I got off easy because I wasn't raped, but I, you know, I don't know who's to say what's worse. Yeah. But it's, it's a very challenging being a female photographer in these environments. Yeah, of course it is. I mean, well, it's challenging being a photographer in these environments. I don't I don't think it's more challenging being a woman. I think, you know, I think actually as a woman, one of the reasons why I'm still alive is because I'm a woman. You know, so many of the hostile situations I've been in, you know, the insurgents or the Taliban or the people that I'm sort of up against, they sort of assume I'm I'm weak and, and they kind of take pity on me and treat me more gently. So actually, I don't think it's worse being a woman. I think it's kind of better being a woman. You've really grappled also, at least in your early career, with managing, balancing work and family because you've always felt this pull of getting on the next plane and going to the next hotspot and, uh, you know, uh, where, where, where all your other friends were getting settled down and getting married. And so it seemed like it was quite a struggle for a while to reconcile those two things. Yeah, I mean, it it has been and it was sort of the the sort of struggle of my life, you know, I mean, I... I've since for as long as I can remember my my entire sort of passion and and drive has been for toward you know this career and photojournalism and and covering humanitarian crises and war and human rights abuses and and for many many years there was no there was no place for a personal life there just I didn't have the time the energy or the space and I think that you know it was in my early 30s that I sort of realized do I want Want to be sort of single and familyless my entire life, and you know I kind of need to figure out how I'm going to fit time for another person in my life, and and I had tried, but it just every relationship just failed miserably, and so I think you know at that time in my sort of early 30s, I met my husband who was a journalist. He was the bureau chief for Reuters at that time, and 
And um, he was the first person that I had actually dated who understands sort of the rigors of journalism and the demands and, and the fact that you have to run off at the last minute to be at a story. And so it was the first time I was in a relationship where it wasn't so black and white. It wasn't either sort of him or my job. And so that enabled me uh, a life. But, you know, I think obviously when I, you know, when we decided to have children right after I got out of Libya, it was terrifying for me. You know, I didn't tell anyone I was pregnant till I was six months pregnant because I was sure people would stop hiring me. Um, so I sort of hid, hid my pregnancy from everybody. And then, uh, you know, after I had children, my editors were less understanding. I mean, I, there is no question, you know, I, I have editors who, I've had one editor who say, I'm not sending you to war because you're a other, you know, I've had I've had editors who just sort of gradually stop giving me tough assignments. I've had an editor question, "How do I feel being a mother going into war? Don't I feel bad?" So, you know, these are editors, and they're, you know, I guess I'm lucky that they feel close enough for me to be honest with me. But the fact is, I don't get treated the same as I did before I was a mother. And sometimes you put your life in danger, but the photos don't get published or they don't get the visibility they deserve, perhaps because of an editor's judgment call. How do you deal with that when you've literally put your life on the line? You know, I, I it's so hard. There's such a delicate balance because it's... Um, you know, you don't want to push too much because you don't want to be the difficult photographer that no one wants to work with anymore. But at the same time, you know, there is a, there is a point, you know, I risk my life and we all risk our lives and, and we want those images out there. I think, you know, I, I don't know. There is no answer to it. I think it's important to be honest and to try to vie for those images to get published and to, to make your case. But I think at the end of the day, it's, it's the editor's call. You recently took on a very different type of assignment, documenting a very different type of death. Can you talk a little bit about that assignment and, and why you decided to take it? Sure. Um, so the New York Times uh, sports desk came to me actually in 2017. Um, and they asked me to, to go to Japan to meet Marike Vervoer, who was a Paralympic athlete. Um, and she had won, at that point, she had won a gold, two silvers and a bronze in the Paralympics. And so she had also, in 2008, signed her paperwork to do euthanasia because she was suffering from a degenerative muscular disease. And so she, she did the paperwork in 2008, even though she knew at that time she was not ready. She kind of wanted them as a security for the time when she was ready. She wanted to know that she sort of had the papers in order and it was her way of controlling her illness. And so when I met her, she was in constant pain. I mean, she had some good days, some bad days. Uh, she was in Japan, which was one of the last things on her bucket list. And we spent a few days together, and then I ended up going to visit her very routinely to her house in Belgium, in Deest, over the course of the next two and a half years. And really, the story initially started out about the, the sort of life and and uh, the life of Marike Bravour and and you know what was her life like as she grappled with deciding when to end her life. But it really became about you know her and this constant struggle to 
you know, she was an incredibly complicated woman who loved life so much. She loved her friends. She had a very close relationship with the people in her life and, and a real sort of charisma and the kind of woman who just threw her head back and laughed all the time. And then suddenly that would just change in an instant and she, her eyes would be rolling back in her head and she would be vomiting and having a seizure and passing out and choking. And, you know, and that for the almost three years I photographed her, that was her life. It was just a constant back and forth of horrific moments and beautiful moments. And finally, uh, she chose to end her life on October 22nd, uh, 2019. And uh, I was in the room with her and her her parents and her loved ones uh, and her nurse. And it was an incredible privilege to witness the end of her life. Um, it was something she asked me to document and to be there for. And she was very savvy about wanting to tell the story about euthanasia and how important it is for someone who suffered like her to be able to decide to end their life with dignity. And so she really sort of entrusted me with that story. And it was an amazing, amazing story. And and you had your own article accompanying those photographs as well. I did. I thought, you know, I thought it was really important to write about those boundaries we have in journalism of, you know, we're not supposed to get too close to the subject. We're supposed to remain objective. We're, we can't interfere and we can't, there's so many rules. And I think, you know, we all follow those rules, you know, and I've been doing this for over 20 years now, but this was a very particular story that challenged me in ways I've never been confronted with. You know, I, in order to be there for the moments where I had to document her having a seizure in the middle of the night, I had to sleep on her couch. And so every time I went to Deist uh, to cover her, I slept on her couch and it was me in the end who ended up sort of holding her up while she choked or holding the bucket while she vomited. And, you know, so how do you deal with that as a journalist? You know, I'm, I photograph and then I'm, I'm holding her head up or I, you know, and so I became very, very close with her and our relationship was proximity to a subject that I've never before experienced. And so I wanted to sort of write about that in full transparency. Looking back on that young photographer in Argentina selling her photos at $10 a photo, <laughs> what would you say to that person about this incredible journey that you've been on over the past nearly quarter century? Look, I mean, it's such a privilege to have been, um, to, to be able to sort of walk in and out of people's lives and to tell their stories and to, to be sort of the, the person who communicates these issues to through incredible publications like New York Times and National Geographic and Time. And, to, you know, I think, you know, I just can only hope that I've been able to provide people with a better understanding of issues maybe they didn't know so much about or with uh, political situations or with the wars, you know, the behind the scenes of these wars. In, in today's environment where there's so much distrust and suspicion of the news and news outlets, news reporters, journalists, uh, what comes across is, you know, that people forget, I think, is the people that actually bring that news, you know, the incredible sacrifice that that reporters like yourself uh, uh, t undertake, uh, you know, on the front lines and the dangers that, uh, that the dangerous situations you're in in order to deliver the news. And I think that's something worth uh, bearing note. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, it's sort of a tragic time for journalism right now because we have, you know, we're in an environment and we're, we have a president who generally sort of refers to everything as fake news and, and there's a lot of rhetoric going on and people have just really lost respect for journalism and, and the fact that, you know, we are there to do a service, to provide a service, to, to document situations, to hold people accountable. Um, you know, we are there to counter lies, to, to tell the truth. And so I think there are people behind all of the stories and the photographs you see, and it's important not to forget that. Um, and I think that, you know, there's been a lot of negativity and I hope that people can step back at some point and realize how important the role of journalism is. Lindsay, thank you so much for joining me today and for the fascinating and inspiring conversation. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Lindsay Adario is a Pulitzer Prize winning photojournalist who for the past 15 years has covered every major conflict and humanitarian crisis of her generation. A regular contributor to the New York Times, National Geographic and Time Magazine among other outlets, Adario has reported and photographed from some of the most dangerous hotspots in the world. She's also the author of the best-selling memoir, It's What I Do a powerful narrative about her coming of age as a photojournalist during the post 9-11 war on terror. This is When It Mattered. I'm Chitra Raghavan. Thank you for listening to When It Mattered. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast platform. And if you like the show, please rate it five stars, leave a review, and do recommend it to your friends, family, and colleagues. When It Mattered is a weekly leadership podcast produced by Good Story, an advisory firm helping technology startups find their narrative. For questions, comments, and transcripts, please visit our website at goodstory.io or send us an email at podcast at goodstory.io. Our producer is Jeremy Kaur, founder and CEO of Executive Podcasting Solutions. Our theme song is composed by Jack Yeagerlein. Join us next week for another edition of When It Mattered. I'll see you then.